2: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your host, Adam Force. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast show. Today, we got special guests. That's right, two people we're going to be talking to. Brian Goldberg, the founder of Bustle, uh, a media monster, and his editor-in-chief, Kate Ward, which I believe was his first hire. Um So Bustle is getting over 50 million unique visitors visitors a month, give or take, as things go up and down, Um, but they have made tremendous strides, and only in a short period of time of a couple years. So um, Brian actually was a co-founder with three other people of The Bleacher Report, which is a sports-based media site, and they sold that for $200 million, and then at that point Brian moved on to build this new media platform, Bustle. Um, he is also the owner of Elite Daily. So Brian has had a lot of incredible success. And like I said, you know, it was in a short period of time. So we wanted to find out, well, what were the secrets to building such a successful and large, large online space for content delivery and consumption? Um, these are all kind of the kinds of strategies and insights that we can use uh, to help our own success with our websites and blogs and things like that. So we're going to jump into this conversation in just a minute. And guys, remember, this is January 15th that I'm recording this today. And that means our latest edition of Change Creator Magazine is going live. And that is with Nobel Peace Prize winner, Dr. Muhammad Yunus. Um, This guy is known for alleviating poverty. He's the godfather of microcredit, all those good things. And the big feature we have uh, started in this edition is to be able to listen to the word-for-word narration of the feature articles so now when you're on the go on the subway walking down the street you can listen to the articles if you can't sit down and read them so check that out you will find those buttons and players all over and without further ado we're going to jump into this conversation, guys don't forget to stop by facebook join the facebook group i am a change creator leave us a review we appreciate your feedback your support five stars means the world to us and it goes a long way all right guys let's do it
0: I know you're
2: going to dig this. Kate and Brian, thanks so much for joining the Change Creator Podcast Show. How are you both doing today?
1: Great, great.
0: Hey, Adam, how are you? Doing great. Doing good,
2: doing good. Doing good. I'm excited to chat with you guys. You know, I was um, just sitting there. We were getting ready to go to sleep the other night, and my wife was on her iPad, and, and she was looking at Bustle, of course, you know, so she's a fan. Awesome. to <laughs> What we yeah. That's what you we know, like. I only came across you guys a little while ago um, for a number of, of reasons. I was doing some research on other media companies and things like that. And, um, you know, you have such a cool story. So I'm really excited to chat about your successes and the challenges and learnings that you have that you might be able to share with our audience who are basically aspiring social entrepreneurs. They're out there trying to scale up their impact. And I think this is some valuable insight for them to, to get their uh, traction going. Right. So, listen. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about, you know, what what did you learn? I'm not going to tap into Bleacher Report too much. I really want to get into Bustle, and I have all kinds of questions there. But, you know, you, you had a success uh, with Bleacher Report, and you know, I'm curious as you started ideating this concept of Bustle, um, what kind of lessons rolled over from Bleacher Report to Bustle?
0: That's a great question. Um, I think there is one lesson, one takeaway that and, – and really sort of one driving force here. It was, you know, there's always more space than you realize and there's always more space than people want you to realize when you're entering a market. So if you look at Bleacher Report, when we first started ideating this, this idea of wanting to start the next great digital media sports property, yeah. the only thing people told us was there's no room. And, in fact, people said not only is there no room, but you're picking by far the dumbest market to go into because if you look at sports, you got ESPN, who at that time was was an 800-pound gorilla. You had classic magazines like Sports Illustrated and the Sporting News. You had the one category that Yahoo was still good at, which was sports. And then you had the leagues who have proprietary content. And then you had four or five other massive players like Fox Sports, CBS Sports. So, so people looked at our, our concept, my co-founders and I, when we put this play together and said, you've just picked the dumbest category to go into. You are going to get annihilated.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and of course, the, the takeaway now, you look, you look over a decade later, Bleacher Report is absolutely dominant in digital sports. Uh, ESPN is, is alive but, but struggling. Bleacher Report is on the rise and and it either is or will soon be the largest digital digital media sports property, and, and far ahead of all those other ones we talked about. And that's because you know yes these things take a long time but there's always space. And I think that that lesson was sort of not at the back of my mind but really at the front of my mind when I went to a group of investors and and went to some of my friends and said hey I think that the you know what you I don't love the term women's media but but what you would call the sort of traditional yeah. glossy magazine world. Is has a lot more space uh, open than people may realize, and 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 certainly Hearst and Condé Nast and a lot of independent publications were doing interesting things uh, with women's media. But I knew that there was going to be space, and I knew that in order to. Find that space, and in order to build something valuable and interesting and different, uh, what was me more fun the second time with, with what became Bustle versus Bleacher Report was that uh, you know I was a big sports fan. I was by no means, and probably the furthest thing from an expert in women's media. So I was basically, you know, a ninja who was operating with four out of five senses, and 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 could you know I was sort of like the you know be the blind the blind ninja here who has to depend on his other senses, and and you know to that end would have to go hire an amazing team of women who really understood this space and could work with me doing sort of the business stuff to, to go find space and, and carve out space. And as it turned out, we've carved out a lot of space. And in <laughs> fact, you know, we, by almost any measure, Bustle Digital Group, our, our, our broader organization, is the largest, uh, the largest media company aimed at young women
2: yeah I mean I love that you said operating with four out of five senses in it, and you you almost it's almost like tackling this platform you were at a little bit of a disadvantage right it's not like you're path, uh, approaching something that you're very familiar with um, which makes it that much more difficult but it also proves that your strategies and practices are um, you know working right so the yep. things that you know about media and building scale uh, applied here are actually uh, successful so I think yep. that's really cool um, and it was a, a good I think it's a good um, example that you shared. So appreciate you talking yeah, about it's that. It's
0: never fun without some adversity. Like, you got to have some it's no fun at all.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I always think about it. People say the same thing oh, you know, entrepreneurship or whatever it might be, it's too crowded in my mind. I'm sitting there looking at the statistics with all the data saying, There's a lot of people out there. There's no way you're talking to all of them. There's room for almost everybody. So just get in the game and try to differentiate and find your angle. You know, everybody learns differently. So if your perspective on one platform is not working for one person, you could talk about something the same, but in a different way, and it might resonate with them. So I think there's always a place. Exactly. So, that's cool, um, I'm just curious, you know, everyone says you have to start with a small niche and really master that, become the mm-hmm. expert, and then from there you can expand. And you know, I see a lot of platforms where I guess if you have big dollars, you may not have to take that approach. What is it, in your experience, does, does that align with what you, you believe is, is a necessary approach for a lot of these smaller starting brands, start with that focus and niche, or, or can you get around that?
0: I don't think you know I don't think your ambition can be niche. I think your ambition's got to be sky high. i think I think your beginnings need to be somewhat humble. so if you look at bustle, you know, we, we wanted to cast a wide net. Our goal was to reach every young woman in America and reach her in a way that was meaningful and really connected. So that was a huge ambition. And, and you know, Kate, Kate will give her recollection of, of early events. But I, when I finally found Kate and finally convinced her to, to come on and lead the editorial team, <laughs> uh, you know, which took a few shots, um, The I told her the ambition was huge. I said, look, this is going to be a company with hundreds of people in just a few years. We want to build meaningful connections with every young woman in, in America, but we're going to start as a company of six people in a small living room in Brooklyn, so so I'm totally with you that you've got to start focused, you've got to start small, and you've got to you've got to walk before you run, but this was never about, hey, we're going to impact this tiny, tiny, tiny slice of the market and then move out from there. This was always a big, big ambition with a very focused, very small team to kick it off.
1: Okay, and I think what we learned also is just how important it is to listen to your audience that early on. Um, you know, it it would have been easy for us to come in the door and just say, oh, we're going to be a women's site that only cares about fashion or only cares about this one type of TV show or only cares about whatever – Um, But being able to see what our audience is responding to allowed us to more easily, uh, you know, provide them with the information that they wanted day to day, which helped us grow out more and more each day. Yeah. So, um, you know, so as much as you can come in from a niche perspective, being able to really just pay attention to what's working for you um, and what your strength is, uh, the better you're going to be down the line. So um, being nimble, I think, is something that, that we've been really good at.
2: Yeah, and I, that's a great segue, actually, and I'm glad you brought it up because I want to talk about audience, and I find that it's the most foundational and, and critical component of any content marketing strategy for whether you're running just you know a, a coaching business, you need to talk to your audience, or you're running a major media platform. So what what do you uh, look for, and how, how do you make sure it is being effective? You talked about looking at the content you put out and seeing what's resonating. Um, obviously, you're, we put money behind articles, so it skews the data. From a traffic standpoint. So are you looking at what has the best click-through rates? Or you know, so what do we start looking at? And, and how do we really hone in on saying, here's here's what people are interested in, here's what we need to talk about more and more and more? Like wh- how do you start shaping that content strategy through the experience of what you're doing?
1: Well, you know, the first of all, the majority of our traffic is organic. Um, so you know, that's that's it's been easy to kind of track what our readers care about because we know that this is what they're genuinely clicking into. Um, I think another thing that we really benefit from is that our editors and our writers are our audience. Um, and that's something that, you know, is is pretty cool and unique that we're able to go to somebody who, you know, is in their, uh, is a millennial in their mid twenties and say, what, what do you care about? What do you want to see a bustle? Um, and they can actually impact the, the coverage. Um, you know, I know in, in, previous jobs that I had being somebody who was just out of college, you know, my perspective was never necessarily listened to, um, sometimes for the right reasons. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I think that when it comes to the business we were building, you know, the only way we're able to really tell what our audience cares about is to go to the audience ourselves. And the great thing is, is I was sitting right next to them on, uh, on a couch and I also am one of them. So I guess I can ask myself too. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and, you know, from my perspective, obviously the, the, the big challenge when I first started the company was, hey, who do I go hire to run this? And I wanted to find a person who, who achieved two things. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted to find a millennial, and we all hate using that term, but I wanted to find a, a woman who who really understood what young women were reading and, and who was truly in there and 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 could ask her friends and was really in that world. And that and that's no disrespect to, you know, a phenomenal talent like Joanna Cole's or Anna Winter or or, or some of the women who, who you know, run magazines have been doing so for decades, but I wanted someone who was in the demographic. Well, the challenge is, if you're looking for a, a, a young woman, how do you find someone who is young, you know, of the age to be a young woman in the millennial demographic, but also has the experience, the professionalism, the work ethic, the, you know, all of those, all of those yeah. assets that Kate has. And so you're, you're balancing there. And, and, and when I came to New York to start this, I interviewed... I really think about 50 or 60 people to, to, to find like, who is that example? Who is that Chinese star? Who is that person who totally gets this generation and is in this generation but also has the professionalism, the work ethic, and, and the organization skills to you know, manage 100 people when we get to that point? And wow. and interviewed 50 or so women, and I found Kate, and, and I'm lucky I did, and I think we're here because I did. But but I think that, you know, that answers your question.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great answer. Um, And, you know, I guess I'm curious on just taking a small step back. So when the idea of bustle was, you know, in your head, how did you start modeling the business to say, here's what I need to start? Like, what did that look like? I mean, a lot of people start as solopreneurs. Um, did you start mm-hmm. with six people? Did you have to get funding right out of the gate? Or, um, you know, maybe you had some, um, you know, funds left over from selling off uh, Bleacher Report. Can you just talk yeah. about how did you start manifesting this?
0: Yeah. So, so we sold, you know, just to give, give context, we sold Bleacher Report uh, after running it for several years, we sold it to Time Warner yep. uh, for, for $200 million. I owned a very small slice of that $200 million, so I, I still had to work. Uh, and not only, but, I, but I did have enough money to, to take several hundred thousand dollars of my money and, and, and use that to sort of as a seed, um, to just, just to get some traction momentum. You, know, you, you can't hire 30 people with a few hundred thousand dollars, but you can hire a very small team. And, and it started with myself a couple of, a couple of uh, engineers were, you know, were needed and designers to, get, to actually get a website built. And then I, I raised a few hundred thousand more from some uh, very close investors, which isn't hard to do when you've, when you've just sold a company for a couple hundred million dollars. But, but even so, you know, raising them, call it a million dollars, a little more, but that's not a ton. You know, when you have big ambitions, that's not a ton of money. So I went out, I got a small team together, uh, including Kate on editorial, uh, a couple other editors reporting into her uh, to to help get the idea uh, and the name and the branding off the ground. A couple of engineers, and it was really a team of, uh, I think, six people on day one, and we did not have a lot of money in the bank, but we wanted to get basically a brand and a model built and something we could point to so that I could immediately go raise a few million dollars more, even before launch. And that's what we did. And then I ended up going to uh, Time Warner, with whom I had a positive relationship. And I went to a team of female investors, It was very important to us that we had female investors who would, who would get this, and it, it made it a lot easier. And so I went to a team of female investors at Time Warner. Uh, I brought Kate with me, I brought her engineer with me, and I said, guys, this is going to be something. This is going to be huge. This, this, you know, We've got this team together, we're passionate about this, and we convinced them to give us a few million dollars more. Uh, and, and that's what it took, and, and, and it took a few million dollars to get this off the ground, which is which is not chump change, but when you look at what our competitors at Condé Nast and Hearst and, and Time Inc. had, uh, you know, it's, it's a small drop in the bucket <laughs> compared to them.
2: Yeah, yeah, big time. So I guess I'm curious, so you had the, you know, success with Bleacher Report, which allowed you to plant the seed and have a small team out of the gate with, um, you know, with uh, Bustle. Um, you know, A lot of our listeners are people who are starting out without that kind of opportunity. Uh, if you didn't have that, maybe even similar to what you did with Bleacher, but you had, you, I guess you had co-founders there, three other co-founders, yep. what, what do you do? Um, what do you do to start getting that scale because you know, this is kind of a game where if you want to start building traction to your website, not only do you need smart content and have to know the audience, but you need a fair amount of content to keep the, the, the momentum.
0: Yeah, well, I'll give my take, and, and, and Kate was there early on. Uh, she should give hers. I mean, in the early days, if you don't have much money, you just got to work two jobs. Yeah. It's the simplest answer, and, and people are like, what, two jobs? But I put what do you mean? Well, you know, uh, in the early days of Bleacher Report, we all had day jobs. In some cases, those day jobs were pretty intense, pretty uh, <laughs> pretty full jobs. Yeah. I, you know, working in finance, working in consulting, working in law. And, and in the early days of Bleacher Report, when we didn't have the money or the scale, we simply did it on the weekends and late at night, and that's what we did, and, and, I, and I tell people, no matter what you wanna do, and, and it doesn't matter if you're a founder, if you, have a, if you are aspiring for one of those dream jobs, being a founder, being a star writer, being an actor, being a dancer, a, a job where a lot of people out there would love to make their living doing that job, it usually means you're working two jobs for a while, and if, and if that means you gotta put in 80 or 90 hours a week and you gotta work seven days a week, fine. No one said the dream was gonna be easy, uh, and that was my Bleacher Report story. I will be very clear that was not the Bustle story.
2: Right, right. No, Bustle but it makes but, sense.
0: Yeah, the Bustle story. I, I fortunately had enough success where I could get that funding. But, but that doesn't mean that you know earlier on I didn't I didn't scrape along like anyone else.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, and you've earned that though with Bustle, and and you you had your you stacked your success with Bleacher Report, and you went through the the side hustle routine, worked your way through Bleacher Report, and so you know I think it's all fair and makes sense. Yep. Um, you know. So, so, Kate, I, I kind of want to kick it over to you real quick, and we did t- to kind of start touching on the, the audience and content strategy. But this is such an important topic, I just want to tap into it a little bit more. Um, you know, so you have to have a smart content strategy, and you know how we approach. Um, you know, ha- I guess I want to say, how do you approach a content strategy to fit the needs of your audience and create scale? So you're getting a lot of organic traffic, but that doesn't happen magically. It happens because you're doing something that is relevant um, to the audience you're going after and Google is agreeing with you. So how do you start when you sit down and say, all right, I just got on board at Bustle. Um, here's what we our mission is, here's our values and what we want to talk about and what we want to reflect. How do you start mapping this content strategy out? Is it for a year and what kind of pillars of content, you know, like how do you think about that?
1: Well, so first of all, something that I always felt that I wanted more from, um, from media is the at least women's media, in particular, was more of like a, a fast-paced um, uh, a site that was able to provide women with information ASAP. Um, you know, a constant flow of content. Um, you know, a lot of times I felt like some of you know my favorite sites and favorite magazines, which I still love to this day. Uh, Would shut down at six PM and on the weekends, and then I wasn't able to really get anything at all. So what we did early on was really make sure <clears throat> that we had coverage as around the clock as possible, which is really difficult when, of course, you only have you know three editors. Yeah. Um, so I kind of feel like I was working eight jobs, even though I was working <laughs> <Yeah>. one job. <laughs> but you know, making sure that we're covering um, as many topics as possible. With as many different perspectives as possible that still are relevant to millennial women. Right. So from there, looking at what was working, looking at the data, seeing what um, what our readers are latching onto. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm coming down from a cold. Um, and being able to build off of that in the future. So um, you know, if we really noticed that, you know, like TV was a category that was really, really doing well for us early on, seeing how can we invest more in TV um, in order to really, uh, you know, amp up our, our coverage and, and provide our readers with what they want. Uh, you know, also kind of redefining what live event coverage was too, was one of our early big strengths. Yeah, um, right. so, you know, usually, uh, you know, live events would mean something like the Oscars, you know, the Golden Globes, you know, all journals would be on covering it, but, you know, we took a different approach and instead treated, you know, the most recent episode of the Bachelorette as a live event. Um, you know, anything in news that was breaking, we treated as a live event, all hands on deck, you know, let's, let's go after this as, as hard as we can. Um, and it was a lot of work and it was a lot of, it was a lot of, um, testing things and seeing what worked. There was things that, you know, failed along the way and there were things that were massively successful, but, uh, you know, we had patience, but we also wanted to, to get to, to this point as quickly as possible. So, um, you know, we're proud of, of the fact that we were able to, to be really nimble, like I said earlier, and be really fast uh, in order to serve our readers as best we can and build that audience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I, you moved quick for sure. Go ahead, Brian. And I
0: will we'll just add to that. I mean, I'll, I'll stick with the, I always stick with sports analogies here cause it's the world that, that where I was more involved in the editorial uh, than I am here. But you know, a bleacher report, what really worked is we looked at the landscape and we said, who's, who's missing, who's not getting what they want to get. And we saw for bleacher report it was really people in the middle of the country who are fans of small and mid-sized teams, typically uh, college teams. And, and we said, look, if you're a fan of the New York Yankees or, or the LA Dodgers or the Dallas Cowboys, you're getting all the content you want from Sports Illustrated and ESPN. Those are teams that get covered every day. Uh, it, it's the teams like the Missouri Tigers, uh, you know, Auburn Football, the Oregon Ducks, who weren't getting covered every day. And when Bleacher Report started to really focus on those teams, we really grew much faster than our competitors. And, we, and what we found was that the couple million folks who were diehard fans of the Oregon Ducks or Auburn football came to know Bleacher Report as the reliable place to get their information because they were being ignored by the larger players. Mm. Now, now Kate and the team at Bustle were not the first to figure out that people like TV. They were not the first to, to, to figure that out. Right. But— what her what team have done so masterfully is they've really connected with fans and they said, OK, you know, maybe a big national show like Dancing with the Stars already has a lot of stuff being written about it. But what about a show like American Horror Story that has a huge, passionate following of young women uh, who, who maybe aren't getting to connect on this topic? And, and that's just one example. her team found dozens of really interesting, juicy topics that were being essentially ignored by the mainstream media. And you always want to build that audience, that connection around the topics, around the shows, around the concepts that are quite simply from a supply and demand standpoint being ignored. And, and I think Kate has done that even better than we did it at Bleacher Report, to give her credit.
2: Yeah, wonderful. And how do you go about, I mean, do you just look at the local uh, news they have and see if there's coverage? How do you go about finding out what is and is not being covered?
1: Uh, from the perspective of, of bustle, I can't speak to picture, yep. but um, you know, when it comes to bustle. A lot of it, you know, really was we would be talking about the things that we would love. So, like another example, a show like Southern Charm uh, on Bravo, we were all obsessed with it. And then when you're <laughs> casually searching on your own, because you were you were yourself curious about things, you notice that nobody else is covering it, um, and so you really see. A market then you can attach yourself to and the best thing is you're a fan of it yourself so you're really passionate about the content you're creating gotcha. so a lot of it's kind of pulling each other and figuring out what is it that we're tuning into what is it that we all have in common um and then seeing you know how much is that covered and you know things like dancing with the stars survivor american idol all of these shows have been have been done to death uh you know at the time that we had launched uh so it's pretty clear i come from an entertainment background so i kind of knew you know what, what shows were definitely the ones that we would invest lighter in mm-hmm. uh, because they were so, uh, so mm-hmm. huge and which were the ones that had the big opportunities.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I got to tell you, Adam, you know, when I was putting my, my investor pitch together in the beginning, I said to them, I said, what will we'll make this company so different from what exists is we really will have a team of editors and writers who are in, their, in the millennial demographic who are in demographic, sort of by us, for us. And investors, many of them asked me, will this actually work? They said to me, this is, this is a really cool idea on paper, but sometimes the best ideas on paper do not translate to real life. And what I said to the investors in the early days is I said, I don't know. I said, I think this will work. I said, I, I think this is a good idea. This feels very different from what Cosmopolitan and Seventeen and Vogue are doing. Th- those are magazines run by women in their 40s and 50s where most of the editorial staff in senior roles are in their in their forties or thirties, and they're trying to talk to women who are teenagers. And I said, this feels very different from that. And that's a very broad, very uh, hypothetical concept with which against which to launch a company. Um, and I we didn't know if it would work. But guess what? The only way to find out if something will work is to try it and to give it a shot. And and of course, to find the right team to execute that really crazy idea. And that's exactly what we did. And I said to investors, I don't know if this will totally change the game, but I'm going to hire a great team and we will find it out. And the answer is yes. Overwhelmingly, yes, it has worked.
2: I love that. I love, I love the approach and the idea of how to talk to an investor about creating differentiation through the relevancy of your staff. That's pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. Really good insight there. So how did you find the staff? Where, where were you looking?
0: So, So for me, I mean, this was – this was a big change for me. I mean, if you look back to Bleed Report, we'd done it in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco. Yeah. Sports is a, its his own world within the media landscape. So mm-hmm. I, in many ways, was starting afresh with a completely blank canvas and not a very large network. Um, I put together a list of 50 or 60 editors I wanted to talk to. I found them by searching LinkedIn for hours and hours and hours and hours a day yeah. for weeks. And I put together a Google document. Spreadsheet with about fifty or sixty women who, whose LinkedIn profiles fit the bill of what I wanted. What I did not want to be clear was somebody who was a massive Twitter or Instagram star who had five hundred thousand followers and had focused most of her life on building her own profile. I wanted to find a woman who had an amazing resume, who had an amazing career, but had done so uh, making her publication and her work the star. And and so a lot of these were women who maybe were not household names and you hadn't heard of, but when you looked at their backgrounds, you're like, wow, that's really impressive. And uh, Kate was one of 50 or 60 women on that list. What impressed me about Kate was not just that she was clearly very smart, having gone to you know Northwestern, a top journalism school, etc., but she'd been at uh, she'd been at Time Inc. and Entertainment Weekly for many years and got promoted. Many times at Time Inc., that's a really hard thing to do when the magazine industry is dying and collapsing to keep getting <laughs> promoted. Um, so those are the kind of things I was looking for. No, she didn't have 100,000 Twitter followers. Yeah, I don't know how many yet. Yeah, maybe a few hundred at the time. Um, but I, 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 you know—what if I'm proud of anything, that I know how to look at someone's back and say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. This is the type of person. So what I did is I did a bunch of trips to New York. You know, I'd fly to New York for a week, meet with eight, nine, ten women uh, try to convince him that I wasn't crazy. Then I fly back to San Francisco where I live and then fly out a few weeks later. And on one of those trips, I met Kate and I was like, I think she's the person I felt very comfortable. And, the, and so finally, I, and when I really feel something my like gut I'm like, let's just go do this. So I said to Kate, um, I'd really like you to join me on this journey. I'd like you to join and do this. And Kate said, what did you say?
1: No, thanks. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I had just come from, I I was, uh, after EW, I went to uh, Hollywood.com to try to uh, revamp their their site. And I was there for 10 months when Brian contacted me. So it was really tough for me to feel like I wanted to leave. yet. but Mm -hmm. I was so intrigued by it. And it sounded so amazing. People start something from the ground up. So I said no. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And and to be fair, she didn't just say no once. She said it twice. (laughs) Oh, man. A month later. Um, But but look, I mean, it's... It's, I, I will say this, you know, one of the traits I think really matters is loyalty. So even though I was extremely disappointed we didn't land Kate, um, I was impressed by her loyalty and commitment. So it just made me want to hire her more, and I am persistent. And I think, what, the third, the third shot, we got you?
1: Yeah. Well, I reached out to Brian, and I was like, uh, you might think I'm crazy, but I'm actually reconsidering. And he said, we <laughs> Do it now, and I was like, "I
2: did. We're doing it." So, <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. That's a great story. It's cool. Um, the persistence, the loyalty, it all uh, plays well. So, okay, so you uh, looked around LinkedIn, and it's interesting. Now, were these people like potentially writing for Forbes and doing things <laughs> like that already? And obviously, um, you were prepared to offer salaries. This was for a full time, yeah. not contracting.
0: Correct. Yeah. No. This was this was salaries and equity in it, and I wanted people who wanted equity and. and Look, I'm not allowed to go to anyone and promise them I'm going to make them a billionaire or a millionaire, but yeah. but but I was able to say, look, you know, if this has the same successful outcome of Bleach report, here's what it would mean for you probably. And it would be a really nice number and it would be a really juicy opportunity um but we were you know i wanted to raise that money to pay other people i wasn't paying myself anything in the beginning i was paying money out of my bank account and it's really scary to watch your bank account oh, yeah. dissipate when you're paying salaries for several people every two weeks <laughs> um but i wanted i didn't want this to feel like a risk in that you know you, you know whoever we hired couldn't pay their rent anymore cuz that's a distraction you know if you can't pay your rent and you can't you can't eat then that's a distraction um but, but, you know, we were able to pay and, and, and really give ownership, and, and, but we only had enough to really get six or seven or eight people out of the gate and, and knew that we had to make the right hires out of the gate, and that's why landing gate was so critical. So, so it, was, it was an adventure, and, and we had a, a small office that was basically a live workspace It was a very small duplex in Brooklyn. I lived – I had to move to New York immediately, which is not easy to do when you have a home and your family on the West Coast, we moved into this small duplex in Brooklyn uh, where the, the lower, smaller floor I lived in and the one above us was for the company worked and it was maybe 1500 square feet for both. And and that's where we worked out of that was that was cheaper and quicker than going and getting commercial real estate.
2: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, do a lot. Does a lot of your team work remotely these days?
1: Um, We have we have bureaus we can say uh, in in several different cities. Uh, We have a a fairly robust team right now, probably around ten people in LA, made up of sellers and uh, editorial staff. Yeah. Um, We also have sellers in uh, Chicago, in Texas, I believe, Mm -hmm. in Florida, Boston, Florida, yeah. And then uh, we have, uh, you know, some editors that work in various locations, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from from D.C. to uh, to uh, Wisconsin to Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Jersey. So um, but most of our staff is is headquartered in New York. Mm -hmm. Very cool.
2: Now, Kate, I have a question for you. And you can choose to opt out of answering it if you want. (laughs) But so if Brian came to you and was pitching you to join his his uh, new idea at the time, if he didn't have bleacher report in his back pocket, would you still have done it?
1: Uh, Well, it's funny. I'm, I am not a sports fan at all. So uh, when he contacted me on LinkedIn and said that he came from Bleacher Report, I was kind of like, huh, I feel like I've heard of that, but not really. And then I looked into it and said, wow, this is a really big deal. Um, But, you know, I think that, you know, beyond that, I, you know, I, I probably would have taken a meeting to hear him out unless he was somebody who was not even a member of the media at all. And, you know, just seemed very sketchy, but, you know, he clearly (laughs) had some sort of idea of what he wanted to do. And, you know, I'm always open to uh, everyone's ideas on on, on media and everything. I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy uh, hearing about uh, how people want to bring something new to the table. So I would have, I would have met with him either way. Yeah. Um, and you know, once I met with him, it was very clear that there was something special going on. So, yeah. um, so yeah, without the bleacher, I probably still would have done it.
0: Well, I think mean, that that's very kind of her and, and Kate's a very kind person. <laughs> I'd like to think that if I, that if I didn't know what I was doing, she would have said no. Kate's very practical. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I definitely, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think she'd she would have said no to me if I was just some joker, but, but, uh, who knows? I mean, look, this was a crazy idea. there, you know the Bustle origin story is crazy in its own way, so who knows what would happen.
2: Interesting, very interesting. I appreciate your answer on that. <laughs> it's it's I was just curious because you know everyone has their different perspectives, and we don't know somebody, and they're just coming at you with something. It may be interesting, but um, sometimes these the background and the experience can you know encourage you to hear somebody out. So it's just a curiosity of mine. Um, so you know. Right now, I guess, what, what kind of, I want to just tap into a little bit of your marketing. You know, you guys have grown um, and done a lot of creative marketing, um, and, you know, you have your flow charts and interactive uh, infographics and things like that. Um, you know, wh- what's your process in developing a strategy that worked for you, and, and what kind of elements are you seeing um, to I guess give you the best uh, traction and exposure. So are the flow charts and th- there's certain things that stand out as part of your strategy that you think are really powerful and forward thinking or maybe they're traditional tried and true?
0: Yeah, I mean I, th- I think, you know, um, you know what, what, what's cool about Bustle is, is we find these things that, that we make our own and, and you pointed to the flow charts uh, you know and you have to go on our, our you have to go on bustle to really see them and experience them uh, we We do some of the really cool original things on instagram uh, we we 've taken a a really leadership position on Instagram stories, and that was all Kate and her team just the product came out. The feature came out and we said hey let 's let 's go uh, come up with three or four ideas for Instagram stories, and here we are whatever eight, nine months later, and we 're this sort of undisputed leader in instagram stories we're, we're the ones who are sort of at the vanguard and driving. That medium and, and I, I mean Kate, how, how did we get Instagram Stories off the ground? What was the uh...
1: yeah? So it actually started when we were talking about Snapchat Stories, and so you know I was kind of like you know scrolling on Twitter one day and saw somebody said something like you know does anyone else skip out on TV to watch their Snapchat Stories at night? And you know that something that hit me right away is like oh that's intriguing. Nobody's really everyone's using it as like some sort of you know uh, quick content play of like you know listy things and everything, but nobody was really creating any sort of. Um, at least in the publishing world, any sort of uh, uh, storyline around it, uh, considering it was, it was sort of cinematic in, in nature yeah, um, exactly. and still very authentic, which was just great for our audience. So um, so we started kind of thinking of these concepts, and then all of a sudden Instagram stories came out, and we were pretty much ahead of, ahead of the curve already because we already were thinking about it. We said, all right, here's our chance. Let's start it on you know, Friday or whatever day it was. We're going to have our first one ready to go. Um, and, and, yeah, we just put that together. And then from there, we, we sort of programmed everything out. Um, you know, looking at like what kind of what other shows you want to do, what are the, what's the best day to put them up, um, how are our, our uh, followers responding to them and using that as inspiration for more ideas, too. So we now have a full program of Instagram stories, uh, you know, almost seven days a week. I think at this point it's not seven days a week. And we're, we're shifting out seasons, too. So it's now it's almost like almost like our own little network here on Instagram, which is really cool.
0: And, and, and everything Kate's describing in terms of stories launching, it, it happened over like 48 hours. And and I remember, I mean, P- P- Instagram stories was not a well-telegraphed feature. It just sort of appeared. And, and it appeared and it appeared and it made a lot of noise when it appeared. And I remember within 48 hours of Instagram stories launching, you know, the publishers like us were surprised as anyone else. And, and 48 hours later, we had a dating show on Instagram stories, like a full-on <laughs> dating show. It was called Dating with Emma. It was, it was incredibly engaging. It resonated extremely well with viewers. And I remember getting a phone call from a friend of mine who works at, at Facebook slash Instagram, and he, he said to me, everyone in our office is obsessed with this dating show you guys made a story about. And this was 48 hours after the feature launched. We, Kate and her and her team had created a dating show that was very real, very authentic, one you wanted to finish. There was a real payout at the end of, you know, did Emma like this guy she went on the date with. and And this was 48 hours after the feature launched. Our competitors at major media companies were probably like, having meetings with lawyers to figure out, you know, over the next nine weeks, what can we do on Instagram? And and it just shows how nimble Kate and her team are.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And I guess just to wrap up this traffic part, I'm curious, uh, you know, what what are the channels that are – Working best for you. You mentioned you get a lot of organic. Um, you know, I think through Digi Day interview, I heard Brian. You know, you talked about Facebook and things like that, and it sounds like maybe Instagram. So, are these three top channels that you're receiving traffic from at this point, or uh, is there other opportunities that are that you're pursuing?
0: Yeah, I think when you take the broadest view of audience, it's it's Google, of course, right? I mean, Search is is how a lot of people connect. Facebook, and I'd say Instagram are the big three right now. Pinterest does very well for us. As well, so we, you know, people have been not talking about Pinterest that much. They should because it's still a very big channel. But I think keeping it on Instagram, you know, if you look, if you look at our Instagram following across Bustle and now at Elite Daily, where we have a, you know, we just acquired a huge Instagram following with Elite Daily. That's millions and millions and millions of followers. And when we put stories up, that you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of viewers a day. Now, hundreds of thousands of video viewers. You know, if you look at a cable channel, that. A lot of cable channels would be very happy to have hundreds of thousands of people watch their channel every day. We're getting that right now. And and our stories are highly engaging, they have high finish rates. And so when we put out a beauty show on on Instagram for Bustle or for Elite Daily, and we get hundreds of thousands of people to watch it, that's real audience, that's real scale. And to advertisers, that's really interesting. So we've had a number of advertisers who pay, you know, really large size campaigns to be involved in <laughs> what are our really awesome Instagram stories? And, and one that got a lot of press recently was Sephora. We, we did a beauty show uh, on, on Instagram in a story for Sephora. I, you know There are very few advertisers as relevant, as game-changing, and as, as watched right now than Sephora, and they have real budgets to work with. And, and uh, there was just a big profile on one of our Instagram stories we did for Sephora, and that is us being new, being relevant, and reaching this huge-scale audience on a platform that, let's face it, two years ago, none of us were thinking about from a true <laughs> media and scale standpoint. Two year, look, we always run Instagram. We've, we've loved our Instagram presence from day one. But two years ago, if we told you we were going to do a big campaign with Sephora on Instagram, you wouldn't have believed us because two years ago, it, it wasn't something you could really picture.
2: Wow. You know, I keep hearing more and more success stories out of Instagram. Um, Yeah. You know, when you were building your audience there, were you doing the whole, you know, I guess, influencer collaborations and shout for shouts? Or was this self-driven and just, you know, ongoing content and, you know, using the stories and things like that to develop your audience?
1: Well, initially we create a lot of uh, our own custom memes and everything based on just brainstorming again with the team. You know, what we all we all deal with every day and coming up with some funny things. Um, and then, you know, just keeping an eye out for other things that, that we thought that our, our readers would think was funny. We, we very much leaned into humor on, on Instagram very early. You know, our audience was there for it. So um, so we found a lot of success, uh, success there. Um, and then you know, I also you know think social partnerships are something that is very that are it's very uh, you know common throughout the business and very lucrative for everybody. So uh, we also you know had uh-huh. some partnerships uh, with other uh, mm-hmm. accounts and publishers. Where yeah. We're able to do trades and uh-huh. show off our custom content uh-huh. and, and their custom content. Yeah,
0: I mean it's it's funny you talk to you know young viewers, young young, young readers, and and you know on, and every platform is is its own ecosystem. So you know years ago. One of the things that might grow our audience is when we got mentioned or shouted out by girl with no job, you know, <laughs> and for some viewers and some audience members, you know, which, which is more relevant, Seventeen Magazine or girl with no job on Instagram. And, and for some people, for some young women, you know, what was, was relevant was, was what girl with no job had to say. Yeah. And, 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 you know, these are not stars in, in the mainstream, but girl with no job had millions of followers. You know, beige cardigan, millions of followers. You know, it, you know, we've got shouted at many times by the fat Jew. Okay, fat <laughs> Jew is not famous as Condé Nast, but for millions of people, you know, when you're shouted at by by the fat Jew, they really take notice. So, so you are onto something with with influencers. But I will give you know where we differentiated ourselves was creating original memes, often funny ones, often comics so comics did really well for us and that's what kind of i think drew drew the attention of some of these bigger influencers
2: very cool. Yeah, no, It makes sense. It makes sense. I think it's that combination of of, uh, approaches. So, Um, you know, one of the things that is always important to any business is monetization. Um, You talked about your Sephora campaign. Obviously, these are things you can do once you're very well established and you have a very large audience that's successful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as you're building up a media platform, um, you have, you know, the lower numbers and engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, When do you start thinking about getting sponsors? Like, Mm -hmm. And, and so what, what kind of, a, you know, MUV or monthly unique visitor rate are you looking at before you could say, hey, come over and do some advertising? There's some value here on our site. Um, and, you know, so let's just start there and I'll do my follow up to that.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, look, you do need to scale, but, but a few million readers is enough to get off the ground as long as you're differentiated and you have a story to tell. Um, we started sales early. You know, we brought in our first salesperson when we were a few million monthly readers, and 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 had a few million dollars in the bank because you do you do need to bur- to be totally straight here. You, you, you got to burn millions of dollars to build a sales team. A sales team is not cheap. Not only do you need a couple of great sellers who aren't cheap, you need a support team. Account you need planners, account managers. You need ad ops people. You need a subscription to ComScore. Yep. You, you know you need you need materials. You need a travel budget to go fly around the country. So you need millions of dollars to go build a, a true digital ad sales force, and, and that's where we've been fortunate to raise capital. But we wanted to start early. We wanted to start monetizing early, and I think we probably landed our first advertising deal. Couldn't even tell you who, who was with. I, I can't. I can't remember, but. You know, within a year and a half of launching, within eighteen months of launching, so so by uh, you know early twenty fifteen, we were closing a fair amount of deals. You know, we were closing deals every few weeks. You know, fifty k here, one hundred and fifty k there. That really matters and makes a difference. So so yes, we were burning cash in twenty fifteen, but we 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 had the funding to do it. We hired some great sellers, some scrappy young sellers, and they were out telling the bustle story. And we continued to grow as we were closing deals. And in that sense, it was very similar to Bleacher Report. You know, Bleacher Report was not a huge brand. We were not even a top five sports publisher when we went out and built a sales force. But our sellers of Bleacher Report could go into an, a client's office and we could say, hey, we're Bleacher Report. We're totally different from Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports and ESPN. They're sports in a suit and tie. We're we're sports by the fans in a t-shirt and jeans, and that story really resonated. And and you know we did the exact same thing in Bustle. We walked in there and said, hey, you know we're not Condé Nast, we're not Hearst, we're not Refinery Twenty Nine, we're Bustle. We have a few million readers, but we're growing, and here's why we're different from all the other guys. And that really does work. That's really effective. Brands do care about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, if if I remember correctly, it only took you about a year to reach ten million monthly uniques, right?
0: Uh, something like that.
2: Around that,
0: yeah. Yeah, maybe that, those were probably our numbers. Cool. How much
2: content do you put out daily, though? I mean, that's that's. I listen to a lot of people, you get a hundred thousand yeah. monthly uniques, and they're pretty yeah. excited about it. You know, quarter million, you're really getting pumped, yeah. and anything over a million, it's you know yeah. a big payday for them. So when you're talking about ten million. That, that's scaling up very quick in one year. So what kind of content frequency were you uh, doing in order to get that kind of scale? I mean, obviously you had a team and stuff. So it was this 10 articles a day plus other creative assets? Where, where were you we at, just to give me an idea?
1: Uh, we publish a few dozen stories per day. So, uh, yeah, at, that know, time, we, at that at time. At the time, yeah. We, have, you know, we had a smaller staff. Uh, right now we have an editorial staff of you know 70 plus uh, people well, that includes videos while they're not creating content uh, for the site but uh, but yeah at the time you know we were probably doing a couple dozen three dozen four dozen mm-hmm. depending on how many editors we had I honestly would have to look back and now it's yeah but,
0: but you do have to launch with that scale right? I mean we didn't launch with three stories a day it, you know we the word scale is sort of thrown around you do need you do need to have a real large-scale organization, and so out of the gate, I don't know if we were doing 20 stories a day out of no, the gate. Out of the
1: gate, we are doing 40 per
0: day. Yeah, 40, and then I think we probably doubled that within a year, yeah. um, but, but you, uh, you know, from our standpoint, when our ambition was to be the next Hearst or the next company, and ask, you got to ask yourself how many stories is Hearst publishing a day, and, and, you know, my guess is if you were to say how many stories does Hearst, broadly speaking, publish every day, they probably still publish quite a bit more than Bustle Digital Group, they're, they're probably doing four or 500 stories a day across dozens of publications. So, you, you know, when you come out there and say, our ultimate competitor, our, our North Star, is we want to be bigger than Hearst one day, you got to look at how many Hearst is doing and you're not going to beat Hearst with six stories a day if they're doing 600 stories a day.
1: And that's also, I think, where the, uh, the technology comes in too, in that, you know, we were able to produce that scale because our back end was so well-built and so, and so fast. So, we had that on our side to be able to to take you know five minutes to create an article and then put it up for less than five minutes even compared to you know having been at other publications in the past, it would take you know a good you know seven minutes before you could even push anything live so um, so that's a testament to our our you know c t o tyler love and and his team
2: very cool, yeah, that's great, and you know um I guess just to follow up on on what we were talking about before how do you Uh, Brian, I guess, how how do you know who the right sponsors are to talk to? I mean, for example, um, is it really important to work with the sponsors that are relevant to your audience and brand, or do you just take anyone that's willing to pay?
0: No, I think, I think, I don't think, um, you know, that, that connection has to be there. I mean, we, you, you certainly have some endemics, some obvious, obvious sponsors who are are a total obvious fit, Uh, you know, for bustle with, with such a large, almost entirely female audience, of course, Fashion and beauty is, is going to be, a, and, and CPG are going to be obvious fits. And then sometimes you have fits that are obvious, but for not obvious reasons. So, for example, we've done some really great campaigns for the Marines. And, and, and when we started Buzzle, I don't think any of us said, hey, you know, we got to go get those, those budgets from the Marines. I mean, that, that would not have been who immediately comes to mind. But then as, you, as, as our sales team talked to them, they said, well, actually, we do want to work with Bustle because we want to reach women. The Marines wants more diversity. We want to get more women interested in a career in the military. We want more women to realize that, yes, we need strong women in the Marines. We need women to realize that there's a place for them in the Marines. We want to get our female representation up. And Bustle, being an audience that reaches a lot of women in their 20s, has been a great partner for them to do that. We've worked with them multiple times and done some native advertising campaigns we're really proud of that focus on you know women's strength. So you know, some are going to be obvious, like cosmetics companies, and some are going to be not obvious. But then when you sit down with them, you're like, this is suddenly obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, the Marines is a great example of that.
2: Very cool. Yeah, that is a good example. Um, Okay, so listen, as we get close to the end of our time here, there's a few things I just want to tap into. And we've been, um, you know, intermittently talking about the the funding uh, and things like that. So I have a Pretty good grasp on, on what you did there, but um, I think you've raised quite a bit of funding, which has been uh, really helpful. And I'm just curious, you know, just like the traffic thing, that are, uh, the sponsor thing that I talked about, when's the right time to think about funding? I know you did it right out of the gates, because I guess you looked at your model and you said, listen, we've got to scale up quick. I need this team right out of the gate. Um, I'm going for funding. Um, Do you have advice for younger entrepreneurs who are getting started? You know, maybe it's just them or they have a co-founder small, you know, whatever it might be. They're not putting out, you know, 40 articles a day. Um, How do you convince an investor to give you the time of day when you don't have the heavy traffic? You're just saying, listen, I know we can get there, but I need your resources to to make the scale happen.
0: Mm hmm. Well, I mean, look, for this one, I have to go back to my Bleach Report story because it's it's the only time I was ever starting from nothing. And, you know, the answer is is twofold. One, you need co founders because you need as much legwork and and person power as possible. And and that means more than one person. And and you got to all be in it together and motivate each other. Bleach Report, you know, I I had several co founders and we all had to work our tails off in the beginning. And the second thing is you you can't be afraid to work two jobs or to have a day job. And it. It seems like such an antiquated concept, and, and you know these days, everyone, every 24-year-old with a, with a 12-page PowerPoint deck feels entitled to a half million dollars of funding just because they put a presentation together. It's like, no way. Um, sometimes you've got to work two jobs, and sometimes it takes a year or two to get off the ground. But remember, if you work two jobs, then, then you can go longer and you can keep the dream alive longer because you have food on the table and you can pay your rent. Um, and I think We're going to return to those days. I think the days of, of, hey, all you need is a great presentation and a few introductions to go raise a half million dollars. I think those days are behind us. That feels very 2013, very 2014 to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I think we're going to go back. We're going to return to an era uh, where people have to work two jobs. And look, that's history repeating itself. In 1998, 1999, it wasn't so hard to raise money. Uh, When I started Bleacher Report in 2000, when I first had the idea in 2005, people said that I'd missed the window. In 2005, people looked at us and said, you missed the window. If you want to start a dot-com, you should have done it in 1998, 1999. The dream's over. And I think that for the new generation, uh, you know, the dream's not over. The dream's never over. But, but it may be, the dream may be harder. And for people trying to launch a company in 2017, 2018 – you might have to work a second job for a while. And I think that's the best thing I can wish on anyone.
2: Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. Character, character. It makes you want it more. You have to fight. Fu- yeah. And, and people like to see that too. Yeah. I funded myself for the first year. Um, you know, you've established, maybe you got product market fit and just kind of proved out something, built your brand up the foundation at least. Um, So I think that makes sense. And I think funding yourself is important, too. It kind of makes you a little more sensitive with how you spend your money as well.
0: (laughs) Yes, it does. Um,
2: So what do you think is the future of media? Um, Where is it going? You know, is it just going to be these major platforms that are dominating with, you know, up to 50 to 100 million visitors a month and how do you see it evolving i guess is what i'm curious do you have a vision for where these things are going and how people are interacting with these media companies
0: yeah i I think look it's an exciting new time i think the platforms are gonna make a ton of money that's fine um there's there's you know in the history of media there's always been people uh in the ecosystem making money for you the 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 printers who were literally published newspapers and published magazines made made plenty of money at, at that time and and and, and there's always going be a lot of people making money. The platforms are going to make more than their fair share. They're going to, you know, if, if digital advertising is $100 billion market, uh, you know, in a couple years, yeah, Google and Facebook will make $60, $70 billion. That's fine. That leaves 30 or $40 billion for, for more traditional publishers, media companies, content creators. So, so, you know, Bustle Digital Group, our company, is going to have to go get our fair share of that $30, 40000000000 billion. That's plenty of room to play with. Uh, I think what you will see is consolidation. I, I think that creating quality content is not cheap. Uh, you have to pay. you, you got to have not only you have to pay people, you got to have an office, you got to have a sales team. you got to have a lot of data subscriptions. you got have, have an, you have to have an engineering staff and, and And so you know those costs are real, and so I think you'll see consolidation. You know our company just exhibited that when we when we acquired Elite Daily um and and we'll probably make more acquisitions in the years to come and i think you'll see some of the smaller and mid-sized players uh start to consolidate uh both to to consolidate on the cost side but also to create even bigger more exciting revenue opportunities for our clients but but i do think you're going to see that and look all you know hats off to facebook hats off to google they've built something really valuable uh you know hats off to the to the team at instagram they've built really cool platforms and, and look without facebook and instagram and google you know, we wouldn't be able to connect with our audience. So, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, uh, in the early days of Bleach Report, Facebook wasn't really a platform for media. Instagram, to the best of my knowledge, didn't exist. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm much happier we live in a world where they do exist. Yeah. I'm much happier we live in a world with Instagram because Instagram has proven to be a, a vessel for Kate and her team to really connect with people. And we're making a lot of money from it. So, so that world is where we're going. And, and how big is our piece? Is, is Bustle Digital Group going to be a 200 million media company, a 500 million media company, a three billion dollar media company a decade from now? I don't know. We're, but, but we're going to be a lot bigger and, and we're going to get our, our big piece of, of the action.
2: Yeah, very cool. Very cool. One thing I forgot to ask, uh, just regarding monetization, do you think display ads are are something of the past, meaning they're they're no longer as relevant as native and video and other things, or do you think there's always a place for them?
0: There's always a place for them. I mean, it's it, they're, they're not dead. I, they're, they're not they're not new and exciting, but but they do work. I mean, there, there's there there's plenty of evidence to, sh- to show that there is efficacy from display advertising. It just can't be. The crux of the story it can't be at the center of your story. It's got to be part of the story. Um, you know, no one, no one goes, to, no one goes to a restaurant because they want to order a bowl of rice. Um, <laughs> but you know, you have rice in a lot of meals. <laughs> That's I a actually, good analogy. I, so,
2: I like that.
0: So, you know, yeah. If I got a good analogy, I'll, I'll stop myself there.
2: <laughs> um, all right. So I guess my last fun question would be. Um, I'll put this to you and Kate. You guys can answer this uh, separately. Um, if you were starting over again, let's say with uh, Bustle, and then Kate also with Bustle, um, knowing what you know now, would you uh-huh. do anything different? I'll give you a minute to sit on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anything different? Um I got to tell you, I, I like where we've gone. I mean, look—the worst answer I can give here is nope. We're perfect. We've done yeah. everything right.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, sure, sure. We worked too hard. We I worked think. too hard. <laughs> we're, we're perf- <laughs> Our biggest flaw
0: is that we're perfectionists. <laughs> There's <laughs> so much. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I think we would have moved even earlier on some things. So, so I am proud that we moved early-ish on Instagram, but I feel like we could have gotten an even earlier start. And, and this is again. This is me being a perfectionist, and this is me saying, "Hey, you know, between Bustle and Lee Daily, we have three million followers on those two accounts. I wish it were, I wish it were ten million, um, because because I think those fans are out there, and I think we could have moved even faster. And I think that you know, maybe my our, our edit staff would have wanted to move a little faster on Instagram and, and maybe Snapchat, but but what was working at the time and what what got us the audience that I could go monetize and go fundraise around." was probably Facebook at that time. So, so I, I, I will take some blame. I, I think we're proud of having a massive audience on Instagram and, and it's really working for us. But I think that if I'd let Kate and the really, if I'd listen to them a little bit more, they might've started six months earlier, 12 months earlier of really building a team and, and a dedicated team around Instagram. Um, and we might've been at 20 million fans now. And you look at Bleacher Report, I, I think on Instagram there are like 15 million between Bleacher Report and their other accounts. Uh, and 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 they weren't doing. I mean, th- they didn't get that much of an earlier start than we did. Uh, so so I kind of wish we'd moved even faster on a couple of these platforms. Uh, but but you know we're here now, and, and I, I still think we're leading the way now. So so yeah. I guess all's well that ends well.
2: Great, great. Kate, any thoughts on your end?
1: God, I've been sitting here that whole answer <laughs> trying to think of it, and I feel so bad mm-hmm. that I don't have an immediate That's answer. Okay. That's it makes amazing. me feel like I'm like everything <laughs> was perfect that I did if <clears> It <and throat> wasn't.
2: Well, you know, it got you to where you are, so maybe you don't want to change anything. You know,
1: <laughs> I mean, I think there's some probably some categories earlier on that we didn't we didn't know were as valuable as as they ended up being. So, like, I think actually something something like um, you know, fashion and beauty, uh, we didn't really start investing in it really super heavily until probably about five months in or so. And I think you know, one of one of my flaws was just thinking like, oh, I I don't know anything about what's on the runway, so I don't really know what to do there. Um, but then we really discovered what was really cool about the narrative that we've been able to push uh, push out from Bustle of uh, fashion and beauty is the sort of like relatable fashion and beauty. There's there's nothing you can do wrong in fashion. There's you know there's no sort of um, trend you have to follow. You kind of just have fun yeah, with it. Yeah. And that was something that I as soon as you know our editor Kara uh, McGrath. Uh, who is our uh, fashion beauty editor, came on board and started, you know, kind of uh, fitting that in with what we had already built, built on Buzzle. it made so much sense. And it, it just made me feel like, wow, we really missed doing this right away, right when we uh, started. So I think that's the one the one category that I think I would have gone into – a lot earlier. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's
2: interesting. And um, I, I know we're going to break here in a second, but that just led me to one more thing to piggyback off that is, how, how often were you pivoting your categories? Um, you know, sometimes you set up categories on the site, and you know, you see something else comes to mind or a different you know angle that you may want to you know brand it as and approach it with. Do you do you pivot often or not really?
1: Actually, not at all. I think one of the things we're really proud of is that we had a uh, mission on day one, and we stuck mm-hmm. to that mission, and we really haven't had to pivot. We've leaned into things uh, a little bit more. Yeah. So, fashion was a category that was just underdeveloped. Gotcha, we really gotcha. The narrative quite yet, um, and then we developed the narrative, and we stuck with that since that was probably early 2014, late 2013, that that came about.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know, I know, we're at it. We're out of time here, and have to run. But I think it, it's a suitable place to end. Uh, if you ask me, what I'm most proud of. With both companies, with both Bustle and Bleacher Report, I think in both cases, uh, we've really the mission, the voice, what we wanted, what we set out to achieve on day one, who we wanted to be, you know, 12 years after first ideating Bleacher Report, the company today, the brand today is very much right down the middle of where we wanted to be. The Bleacher Report voice and ethos and idea has not pivoted. And I think we can say the same thing for Bustle. I think that the idea, that the spirit, the, the heart of what Kate and the editors wanted to create with Bustle uh, four years ago is very much where we are today. And others, if anything, others are trying to move into our swim lane. We're not going to pivot because we like where Bustle is. And, and, the, and the folks at Bleacher Report to this day, they're not going to pivot because they like where they are. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think that's, the, you know, I have so much respect for companies that pivot and, and companies like Buzzfeed, who reinvent themselves beautifully every few years, um, but that's not who we are at Bustle. That's not who we were at Bleacher Report, and that's what I'm proud of. Is we are who we said we were, always have been, always will be, and, and I think that's just something that I. One of the reasons I love doing what we do.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great, great answer and good insight. I, uh, I love that. So thank you, and I think it's a good ending note as well. So. Cool. Guys, I, Thank- I appreciate both of your time. I know you're super busy, and um, I'll let you get back to uh, crushing it with Bustle. Well,
0: thanks thanks you so much. So much Great chatting.
2: All right. Take care, guys.
0: See yep.